The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Joining me on the program today is Alice J. Friedemann. She's author of two books, When Trucks Stop Running, Energy and the Future of Transportation, her newest book, Life After Fossil Fuels, a reality check on an alternative energy. She also has another new book coming out, and she's proprietor of the website energyskeptic.com. Allison, I wonder if you would share with our listeners your background and how you got interested in peak oil. Well, my grandfather, Francis J. Pettyjohn, was a geologist who is one of the founders of the field of sedimentology, would sort of tell me how important oil was. But then when I got to college during the first energy crisis, I was in an alternate technology group and I saw the engineers, you know, building wind turbines, solar. They built cars that ran on methane, batteries, and so on. So I stopped worrying about it. And Grandpa would kind of shake his head, and he wrote a memoir, which I unfortunately didn't get around to reading until 2000. And it turns out he was best friends and a mentor to M. King Hubbard at the University of Chicago. And it talked a lot about Hubbard and um, his peak oil theory, and that the world peak oil would be in the year 2000. And I was like, what? That was pretty alarming to me because I did know oil was important. Everything around me was running on it. And so I started doing research on Hubbard and came across Hubbard's Curve at the Colorado School of Mining and then various forums that talked about how renewables couldn't replace oil. And I was like, oh, of course they can, you know. And I started going to UC Berkeley to do my own research. I have a degree in biology with a chemistry physics minor, and I was in the Science Writers Association, so I wasn't at all phased by doing research on my own. Meanwhile, I have a career in transportation, and so that was also making me very aware of the role that oil played. I worked for American President Lines, the fifth largest shipping line, and 90% of goods that are traded globally, travel by ship. And a whole lot of ships out there are carrying coal and oil. And then the goods would be transferred to trains and trucks. And I saw everything got on a truck, everything. So that's how I came to write my first book for Charles Hall, for uh, Springer, which is uh, Nature Magazine's publishing arm. Well, in your book on trucks, you talk about the, is it kilojoules of energy? that are used by different forms of transports, helicopter 55,000, air freight 30,000, compared to oil tankers of 50 and trains of 250 and 60. The thing that really struck me, and I didn't realize this, one gallon of diesel fuel on a train will move a ton of goods 476 miles. I'm surprised. I know at one time, as we began the Industrial Revolution, part of that was the transportation system and trains, which was a big growth industry in the 19th century. What happened to our trains that used to crisscross the country? Well, it turns out that the freight rail, which is the most important, is in private industry hands. And they spend more than any other industry just maintaining what they have. So that makes it too capital intensive to lay more rail. So there's only roughly 95,000 miles from 
point A to B, rail out there. And everyone wants stuff just in time. So I just hate to think of how much oil has been wasted on trucks that are half empty or completely empty after returning from a factory or other delivery, given how much more efficient rail is. It's just been this tremendous waste of oil while it was cheap. And there still ought to be a dating service for trucks where when they are empty, that they can find some other place nearby to pick cargo up and take it somewhere. It's just, you know, one of the biggest wastes of energy in the history of mankind. You know, this strikes me when you say we want things immediately. And I made this comment on Amazon, and it was amazing because Jeff Bezos said, eventually Amazon will go bankrupt. And my job is to delay that day for as long as I can. And the reason I think that happens, Alice, for the point you're making, in one day, I ordered vitamins. That was $10. That was a separate delivery from Amazon. I ordered some file folders. I think that was $12. That was another delivery from Amazon. And then I ordered some Keurig cups and that was $70. That was a third delivery of Amazon. So you've got a separate driver, a separate truck, and each one of those deliveries, they're delivering $10 of merchandise to my house. That's wasteful and it's costly. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's absurd. It's interesting. He seems to realize that will end. Yeah. I want to talk about the industrial revolution to our technology revolution today. And most people don't realize it. You know, we have iPads, we have iWatches, we have iPhones, we have laptop computers, all these technological devices. I'm reminded of that every single night when I have to charge all these things. But all of that is made possible with fossil fuels. Most people don't realize that. Yeah, I mean, two thirds of the grid runs on natural gas and coal, and it can't stay up without natural gas because that's how you would balance wind and solar to kick in immediately. Sure, hydropower could do that, but a lot of the year it's not available. As you know from also living in California, the agriculture needs it, cities need it, the environment needs it, and pumped hydro, there's really nowhere left to put dams. I think the last pumped hydro dam was built in 1991 in the U.S. Compressed air energy storage is only in one small place in Alabama where they have a salt dome, which is a rare geological feature, mainly along the Gulf Coast. So that leaves energy storage batteries. But those are not going to scale up. And when trucks stop running, the only battery for which there are enough materials on Earth to store Just one day of U.S. electricity generation are sodium sulfur, and a battery to do that would take up 923 square miles and weigh 450 million tons, and then you'd have to replace it after 15 years. And yet, a lot of scientists believe you need at least a month of energy storage. By the way, natural gas and coal provide several months worth because wind and solar are so seasonal. For instance, across the entire United States, there's very little wind in the summer. And across the entire winter, there's very little solar, even in the desert southwest. And there's no national grid to share what little there is, nor will there ever be a national grid. There's simply too much not-in-my-backyard opposition. Robert Bryce has an excellent database of all the uh, wind and solar projects that have been stopped, well over 500 down, let alone the transmission lines. That takes 10 or more years. You know, the politician and the elites are focusing on climate change, yet, as you write in your book, the biggest crisis facing mankind is not climate change. They don't see the big trouble that lies ahead. The deadliest crisis 
of our civilization is energy decline. When we no longer can produce enough energy from oil or natural gas to power this economy. And there, nobody's addressing that, or at least very few. Oh, I think it, I, I have a post at my website, why do politicians deny peak oil and so on? There's no solution. We wrote peak oil resolutions and what to do for both the city of Oakland and city of San Francisco. I participated, but the city councilmen were like, you're telling me you have a problem and there's no solution for it. What am I supposed to do with that? How will I get reelected? I mean, you look at Reagan's Morning in America versus Jimmy Carter's We Need to Put More Sweaters On. It's just politically impossible to tell the public and try to prepare them. Well, eventually that's going to arrive. And I don't think most people realize that, you know, we think of oil, we think of the gasoline we put in our cars or the diesels and RVs and trucks, but cement, steel, roads, cars, farm machinery, food, healthcare, and I think there's something like 500,000 other products. It's not just gasoline. Fossil fuels is embedded in everything we do in our daily lives, from the plastic in our alarm clocks in the morning to the electricity running our coffee pot to the gas we put in our cars, the heating and cooling in the buildings that we work or in our homes, to cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. I mean, it is part of what modern life is today, all on fossil fuels. Well, and natural gas-based fertilizers to make ammonia that is keeping 4 billion of us alive. Natural gas is finite like oil. So that might be the biggest one of all in some ways. And then you don't have tractors and harvesters. Like if scientists were in charge of coping, they would have started in the 1960s or earlier with creating tractors and harvesters that ran on something other than diesel fuel. John Deere never even tried to make their tractors run on ethanol or biodiesel because, well, it won't work. And so now they're coming up with these really wacky electric tractor ideas called swarm tractors. There's a great YouTube you can see. Get an idea of it. It's basically six tractors linked by a three-kilometer long cable. And you can see the comments from the farmers below just you know, wondering what is it going to have to tow a diesel generator behind it? How long will it take to charge the battery? You know, I think the biggest problem of all is that they would weigh so much that they would compress the soil permanently and reduce crop production. John Deere said that to make an electric 8R diesel row crop tractor, which is, you know, how most food is food calories are produced, today's diesel would cost 250,000 and weigh 28,000 pounds. But to replace it, to make it all electric, it would cost over a million dollars and be twice as big and heavy. And I think also of interest, I wish we could certainly make wars obsolete, but the U.S. military is the most peak oil aware of, of any branch of government. And so they've been trying for years and years and years to figure out how to replace diesel since all their war machines run on it, their tanks, their planes, their drones, the supply chains. And they asked the National Academy of Sciences to take a crack at it in 2021. The National Academy is a great source of information. It's the U.S. top scientists nominated by fellow scientists. So that leaves industry and big business and government out of it. And they give very honest opinions to Congress and other departments like the Government Accountability Office. So they looked at how would you keep wars going? 
And one of the ideas that's been proposed that, that they rejected was that you'd have mobile nuclear power plants that would be, you know, very small that you could recharge everything on. I mean, what could go wrong with that? Oh, my goodness. Talk about a target. Kaboom. Or the idiocy of turning the military into EVs. I mean, can you imagine going into battle? Well, hold off. We need to charge the tanks. But they know they're going to not have diesel or jet fuel is is also something that they like to use. And so I'm looking forward to when we go back to horses and fighting on foot myself, because maybe that will prevent nuclear war and the tens of millions that are killed with modern warfare. There's a bright side to peak oil, huh? Yeah, I guess on the positive side. But you know, something that also strikes me too, and this we saw a lot of this in the 2000s, people became aware of it with the peak movement. No one is paying attention to the fact that major oil discoveries peaked in the 60s. That's when we found the big oil fields and have fallen every decade. Globally, new oil discoveries have fallen, for example, six years with consumption, six times greater than discoveries from the period of almost the last decade, 2013 to 2019 alone. And the fact, Alice, that we're drilling offshore deep water, shale, tar sands, and biofuels to put energy into our cars and trucks should alert us to the possible dangers that lie ahead. You would think, and another problem that I have quite a few posts on, energy skeptic, is like a quarter of the remaining oil is in the Arctic, but we can't get at it. On land, the permafrost heaves and thaws, heaves and thaws, and it tips over you know, oil infrastructure, pipelines, buildings, and all that. You can really only do it in winter, and then the summer's going to wreak havoc with whatever you've done. And then in the ocean, you've got ice flows. And so Shell backed out after spending billions of dollars trying to do it. So, you know, even the little oil left is going to be hard to get at. In your first book, When Trucks Stop Running, you talk about, at the beginning of the book, what happens when there's not enough diesel for trucks. I wonder if you'd kind of take us through this scenario, because most people don't realize this. We saw a bit of this during the lockdowns with the supply chains with COVID, where everybody was going after toilet paper. You were limited to the amount of eggs, milk, or products you could get into a store. Take us through that scenario, would you? Well, if trucks stop running, well, we've already seen, you know, in Chicago, I grew up, there was a huge snowstorm and the streets were empty because you couldn't go anywhere. And the grocery stores empty within three days. The same thing would happen if you couldn't get groceries to the store because of lack of diesel. And that goes for every other business, pharmacies, hospitals, gas stations. Within a week, they all depend on daily or every other day, whatever deliveries. All the manufacturers depend on deliveries of parts and raw materials. You'd start to have millions of tons of garbage piling up. Uh, At some point, water purification chemicals wouldn't arrive and it would be unsafe to drink your water. I mean, it's like civilization could end within a week. But I know from the um, 1980 plan for rationing that the Department of Energy wrote, they would immediately ration gasoline to agriculture off the top so people were fed. And then whatever else could be spared would go to keeping the rest of society running, the police, fire trucks, you know, cooking, that sort of whatever. And But, but you know, the public would be last in line because you need all the other uses of oil first. So I guess it, it will be, a, there's the positive thing. We'll get more exercise, more bicycling and walking, huh? Well, maybe we'll get in better shape. Exactly. 
you know, we think of, once again, when we think of oil, we think of our cars. But in your book on truck stop running, you talk about how energy is used in our society, where oil goes. 28% is transportation. 21% is in industry, about 11% residential and commercial, and then 40% for electric power. And that's important too, because we want to go green and they keep talking about, you know, we're all going to be driving electric cars if everybody can afford them, which I don't think is possible. But nonetheless, where's all that energy going to come from that's going to power the grid if, you know, at night, instead of just your car parked in the garage, your car's parked in your garage and it's being charged? Well, it won't work. And quite frankly, the idea of electric cars is insane because that only frees up gasoline. This is a diesel crisis. You could call it peak diesel if you really wanted to get to the nub of the crisis ahead. And you have to make gasoline from crude oil. It's just part of the barrel. There's, you know, asphalt, jet fuel, propane, All there's about 60 products and they're there. And so what are you going to do with all the gasoline you freed up for electric cars? It's obviously trucks that would need to be electrified. And I wrote about why you can't use overhead wires either, because that's insanely expensive to do. And you need to have two forms of propulsion since trucks would need to go on and off the wires to get goods and deliver them. So, you know, there's really no way to electrify trucks. I mean, what we need to do is consume less, but that goes against the grain of capitalism that needs to constantly grow to pay off debt. I don't have a solution. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, in fact, former chairman of Exxon has alluded to, others have talked about, energy transitions take anywhere from 50 to 70 years to take place, whether it was from timber to coal, from coal to oil. And our politicians, and especially our own governor here in California, is this is going to take place in 10 years. In, what is it, 2035, you won't be able to buy gasoline cars. In 2030, you won't be able to bring in diesel trucks. I mean... How's the, you know, it's like we pass a law and magically this is going to happen with no thought of the science or the mechanics and logistics behind this. Yeah, I know. California has a goal of 100% by 2045. But, you know, Gavin Newsom will be out of office by then, so he won't pay the price. And I have a chapter in my upcoming Showstoppers book about offshore wind, which is the only way that California could possibly meet that goal because on land, California is a wind desert. There's mainly only wind in the summer. At the same time, you have solar and hydropower. And then the rest of the year, all, all of them are not so great. And we don't have enough geothermal to matter. And the only place that really has a lot of wind, and it has a lot, is offshore from Mendocino North to the Oregon border. But that's not where the other 39.5 million of us are way hundreds of miles away in the middle to southern to southern parts of California. You know, they're talking about Humboldt County, the port in Eureka, and that only 45,000 people live there. And then California at night, like nearly all wind turbines on earth are built in water less than 200 feet deep. Well, the depths offshore are 2,000 to 3,500 feet deep. And nowhere on earth has seas as rough as offshore California. It's hard to imagine that wind turbine not going for a swim or deciding to have an onshore vacation. The, the way to tether it that deep 
is not commercial. Nobody knows how to do it. You'd have to invent robots that could do it and go down and maintain it. You have to have new ports because you need thousands of feet to assemble the turbines on because they're so big. There's no way they can go overland. Even wind turbines, many of them can't go very far overland or they'll hit a bridge or some other obstacle. So, well, it's insane for even more reasons than I'm going to cover. But so basically, California can't meet its 100% goal. Well, we're pushing windmills, solar panels, which, as you just mentioned, will not work. In fact, just a couple days ago, Sweden has just abandoned renewables and they're going to nuclear because the renewables aren't working for the very reasons you just mentioned. Where is the critical thinking of government and industry? If I was running a company, and let's say an industrial company, where I need power and intense heat to make things like steel or even cars, you would think that the CEOs of these companies would be looking at this and thinking about the future of their business. Well, I don't know what they would run it on. Um, Chapter 9 of Life After Fossil Fuels talks about how you need um, fossil fuels to generate the 3,000 degree Fahrenheit heat to extract metals from ores, make cement, iron, ceramics, glass, microchips for computers and every other device on earth. And renewables can't do that. I mean, geothermal only gets up to 370. Conventional reactors, 575. You can't really use hydrogen or electricity in kilns or blast furnaces because they're more pinpoint. And there is no commercial way to do it with hydrogen or electricity, but cement, um, steel, iron, and all that are the backbone of civilization. So, you know, and even the advanced nuclear reactors are not commercial. They're far from commercial. The natrium's liquid metal sodium fast reactor can get up to 1100. They just got $2 billion, by the way, from the latest infrastructure plan. And the X Energy's pebble bed high temperature gas reactor can get up to 1800 Fahrenheit and they just got $2 billion. And that's where big thing in Congress, I saw 125 bills promoting advanced nuclear reactor technology in just 2023. But back to the National Academy of Sciences, they just published 300 page document about that mentions the word waste 1600 times. And they are encouraging Congress to not build new nuclear power until there is a permanent waste storage facility, which requires a brand new agency that whose budget and staff can't be influenced politically or economically so that they can plow forward with it. And these new advanced reactors generate two to 30 times more waste than to Today's reactors, based on a apple-to-apple power-generated comparison, and depending on which type of advanced nuclear reactor you're talking about, and they're equally radioactive and harmful, and might need to be stored in a different geology to keep their different radionucleotides from migrating into water tables. So I personally would like it if it was a showstopper that you can't build more nuclear without nuclear waste sites, but that's it's probably not going to happen. But since they generate electricity, they don't keep trucks running and they don't 
keep manufacturing going, nor do they keep mining going, because mining depends heavily on diesel fuel to even get the ores to make themselves with. So here you would be generating nuclear power and poisoning a million years of future generations with the waste, which they won't have the energy or knowledge to bury. I don't know. I guess that's my pet peeve because there's not many people, you know, actively opposing this. Now, in your book, Life After Fossil Fuels, you look at some of the alternatives to let's say fossil fuels from biomass, you even look at coal, natural gas, you look at nuclear, ethanol, and biodiesel. And you came to the conclusion, none of these, in other words, there isn't anything on the horizon. When we had when we ran the world on timber and wood, we discovered coal and worked with that. And then we discovered oil. But when you look at all these alternatives, as you examine in your book, there's nothing really scalable and durable that can replace what we're using now with fossil fuels. Explain that. Well, I mean, first of all, as I've sort of gotten at, the all renewables require fossil fuels to be made every single step of their life cycle. So they're not renewable. Many of us in this community call it rebuildable. The only true renewable is biomass. So I spend a good a third or more of life after fossil fuels looking at biomass, ethanol, biodiesel, cooking grease, you know, which, you know, scaling that biofuels up. And the problem is that Every year, we burn 400 times more fossil fuels than all the plant growth on Earth, including the plankton in the ocean. Whereas oil was brewed using solar power, it is a solar fuel, over 100 million years, but we would need 400 more Earths to match that. And back when it was made into oil, Mother Nature used the recipe was 98 tons of plants per gallon of gas in our cars. So that's like every 20 miles you'd have to get out and harvest 40 acres of wheat, stalks, roots, and all, and make that into a biofuel quickly. The the speed at which we're trying to do it, every single step uses energy. And that so I firmly, strongly believe that the energy return on energy invested is negative for biofuels. But that's energy return is a difficult topic because people that are pro whatever it is, just leave out a lot of the energy input. So it's probably not worth going into on that regard. But Alice, in your opinion, what should we be doing now to prepare for this eventuality? We could certainly try to make homes more insulated so that they can tolerate heat and cold better without air conditioning and heating. We could start walking and bicycling more. That's where electricity would be nice to have electric bikes. They don't take as much power by it at all as cars do to recharge. We should learn skills that will eventually need, but above all, consume less and maybe become more aware of all the harm we're doing to the planet. If we were going to mine the materials needed for renewables, that would affect 37% of the Earth's surface. China already has lost 20% of their arable soils to um, pollution from mining and coal. I mean, do we really want to destroy the planet? Michaud, Simon Michaud has written something you may have heard of where he actually estimates how much material you'd need to make and energy to make the renewables to replace fossil fuels. And we would run out of copper, some rare earth metals, and quite a few things before even the first generation were built. So we need to go back to a simpler way of life. And the good news is, I know not all of your listeners believe in climate change, but once you stop burning fossil fuels, 
within 30 years, you lose half of the CO2 in the air and methane, and it continues. 20% remains for 100,000 years, but that might keep another ice age from happening or severe, which will please uh, future human beings to not have to go through that. Biodiversity will be saved. The, the, there's about nine other problems besides climate change that are existential threats, and, and they'll all be solved by the decline of oil. So you and I were talking before we went on the air. What are you doing? I know you just talked about installing solar. My house is solar powered. I got an EV and my new sailboat will have electric engine because when diesel becomes scarce, I can't imagine that the government's going to allow power boaters to consume it. Yeah, I mean, one solution when I was in Canada, I met the head engineer of Suncor to keep the equipment operating even through the long winters. And he was very aware of peak oil and he had gotten a catamaran, which is wind powered, and was learning how to sail that in rougher and rougher weather. And catamarans can store quite a bit of food. I've learned how to garden, can, dry fruit. Those are the skills I'm most interested in. I think everyone has different interests and skills to learn. I mean, carpentry is going to be important. There's, there's all kinds of skills that will be useful. You look at Cuba, where they're still keeping the cars running from 50 years ago. And hey, we won't be able to do that with cars today because they're too dependent on hundreds of microchips. But people that can still craft custom parts to fix aging equipment will be in high demand. There's quite a bit written about it. This isn't actually what I specialize in. People should go to postcarbon.org, resilience.org, permaculture. There's many, many people that what Stan Cox has written about rationing systems. There's many people writing about what to do, that that's what they do and to get more detailed and wider advice than I could give. How do you think when this erupts, when we are unable to get enough oil or natural gas to power the economy, how do you think politicians are going to explain and handle this with their voters? Oh, the Russians did it, or it's the Chinese fault. They're not sending us enough rare earth metals. Uh, we need to mine more to get them ourselves. So until we do, you'll just need to not consume as much. But we're going to get there. They'll just offer all, they're already offering all kinds of hopium. You'll constantly see, you know, ridiculous ideas in the news. You know, we're almost to fusion. We're almost to, to this or that. They'll just keep offering hope. And then... I don't know. You look at what happens when countries fall apart, and I don't know. You get more crime. I think you get authoritarianism, basically, because you have to go to a command economy to try to keep things going as well as possible. In your opinion, from the knowledge that you study, I've heard, you know, when before the late Matt Simmons passed away, he wrote Twilight in the Desert. Matt saw peak oil. He didn't. He passed away in 2010, so he did not see the Shale Revolution, which to me was a gift that would allow us to buy time, but we squandered it. What's your estimate when we hit that? Because we know we're not making new oil discoveries at a quantity enough to replace what we're consuming. So it's just a matter of time now. Well, I mean, already a lot of the basins are past the, the back end. A lot of, I think seven of the eight basins are already declining and only the Permian is keeping the show going, but at, at less production than the peak production. And then it declines at 80% within three years. I have heard people far more expert than me say we have one to 10 years more. It, it, people, I don't know who to believe and that we have 
a lot more natural gas than that, maybe 20 years from fracking. And we did know, M. King Hubbard knew about shale oil. He just didn't put, he only calculated, made his calculations for conventional oils where we get 90% of our oil from. Um, It was just ridiculously expensive to try to get at it back when he, you know, he knew about it in the 1940s. So it's not a complete surprise, but it's like the dregs. It's like the bottom of the barrel in terms of trying to get oil. So yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. You should talk to Tad Patsick or other experts that are looking at it. Well, listen, Alice, as we close, tell our listeners about your website, energyskeptic.com. And once again, the two books that Alice has written, her first, When Trucks Stop Running, Energy and the Future of Transportation, her latest, Life After Fossil Fuels, a reality check on alternative energy. And Alice, you're working on a new book, if you could share that with our listeners. Yeah, that'll be called Showstoppers, and I will go back in with new information on transportation, manufacturing, batteries, biomass, and other problems like peak sulfur, peak microchips, the other things that are going to cause society to fail, the latest in electric tractors, more in-depth into war equipment that doesn't run on diesel or jet fuel. Almost too much. I might have to write two books. It's really amazing the confluence of different factors. Oh, and I'm going to have a lot on mining and looking at could we get elements from seawater, What about all those nodules on the seafloor? I've redone Simon Michaud's calculations because he only accounts for a quarter of the energy fossil fuels provide for how many um, wind turbines we'd need to make and how much material that would take to replace fossil fuels and what elements might run short. I don't know. It's quite a summary of all the issues. All right. And when will your book come out? I'm hoping by the end of the year. There's just so much to write about that it's taking longer than I thought. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the program. Once again, the name of the books are When the Trucks Stop Running, Energy and the Future of Transportation, and Life After Fossil Fuels, a reality check on alternative energy. And Alice's website is called energyskeptic.com. Alice, thanks for joining us on the program. Well, that concludes my interview with Alice Friedman. Bear in mind, her two books were based on her own work experience. She spent nearly three decades in the trucking industry, where the major cost is fuel. If you think about anything you buy in the store, well, it probably got there by some truck, car, or vehicle. And that's why fossil fuels are a critical part of a functioning economy. Without them, we wouldn't be where we are today. Unfortunately, the problem that we're dealing with now is energy transitions can take up to 30 to 50 years. And right now, we have no coherent plan on making this energy transition. If we want to go green, well, green takes raw materials and energy to make. So they are going to get scarcer, especially with the administration's anti-fossil fuel policies. You remember this summer when we got down below $70 a barrel? I warned you, by fall, we would be at 90 and eventually 100 or more. On this Friday, energy prices crossed just below $86 a barrel. Unfortunately, I warned you about something else. Inflation would return, so look for higher energy prices and higher inflation this fall. I'm Jim Poplava. Thanks for listening. 
Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.